morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 27. Genesis 27. A couple of weeks ago, when we talked about Genesis 26, we talked about how there was a famine in the land. So Isaac and Rebekah went south to the land of the Philistines. It was there that God spoke to Isaac and reaffirmed once again that he would receive the blessing or covenant that God had given to Abraham. God appeared to Isaac again in Beersheba and reaffirmed the promise again. God said he would be with Isaac and bless him. God would make his descendants numerous and give them the land of Canaan. And it would be through them that God would bless the world. God then blessed Isaac by protecting his wife from the Philistine men, by giving him peace with King Abimelech and the Philistines, and by providing water in the desert. But that didn't mean all would be well for Isaac and Rebekah. As it turns out, they had a very dysfunctional family life. But before we look into that, let's pray. Lord, there are some parts of this sermon that could be considered controversial. So I pray that you would give your people discernment to know whether I am interpreting and applying correctly. But I pray you would use your word this morning to deepen our commitment to you. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before we get to chapter 27, we're going to start by reading the end of chapter 26 again. That's because the story in chapter 27 begins and ends with a couple of thorns in Isaac and Rebekah's side. Starting with chapter 26, verse 34. When Isaac was 40 years old, he married Judith, daughter of Beri the Hittite, and also Basemath, the daughter of Elan the Hittite. And they were the source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Now jump down to chapter 27, verse 46. Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I'm disgusted with living because of these Hittite women. If Jacob takes a wife from among the women of this land, from the Hittite women like these, my life will not be worth living. In the story we were about to read, Isaac had become blind, not only physically, but also blind to the fact that he was about to pass the blessing or covenant that God gave to Abraham and his descendants down to Esau and his two Hittite wives. The covenant was in danger of being derailed, and Rebekah was not about to let that happen. Let's start reading in chapter 27, verse 1. When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, here I am, he answered. Isaac said, I am now an old man, and I don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your equipment, your quiver and bow, and go out into the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food that I like, and bring to me to eat, so that I may give you my blessing before I die. Although Isaac thought he was about to die, he actually continued to live for many decades. Some time ago, I went to a pastor's workshop at the Cancer Treatment Centers of America in Chicago 
They told us that they never tell their cancer patients how much longer they have to live because only God knows that. We've all heard of stories of doctors who told a patient they only had a few months to live and they ended up living for years. Isaac was convinced that he was about to die, but he continued to live for decades. Our story this morning is about the blessing or covenant God gave to Abraham, which had been passed down to Isaac and was about to be passed down to Jacob. Now, God had made it abundantly clear that the promise, the blessing or the covenant, was to go to Abraham, Isaac, and their descendants. The problem was that although Esau himself was a descendant of Abraham, the Hittite wives he married were not. When Esau had kids, the blessing would then begin to be sidetracked from Abraham's extended family to the Hittites. What was Isaac thinking? In this story, Isaac and Rebekah have favorite sons. Isaac's favorite son is Esau, the manly man, the hunter. And Isaac also loves his food. He wants Esau to hunt wild game for him. Now, the word game here is used seven times in this chapter, and tasty food is mentioned six times. That's the author's way of emphasizing Isaac's attachment to his food. Because Isaac was apparently blinded by his love of food and his favoritism toward Esau, God's blessing or covenant was in danger of being derailed by being passed down through Hittites. Back in chapter 25, before Jacob and Esau had even been born, God had specifically told Rebekah personally that her older son Esau would serve the younger son Jacob. It was God's plan that Jacob received the blessing, not Esau. And Rebekah was going to make sure that's exactly what happened. But Rebekah may also have had ulterior motives as well. After all, Jacob was her favorite son. And beside that, she despised Esau's Hittite wives. So she decided to take matters into her own hands. Rebekah had overheard Isaac's conversation with Esau. So starting in verse 6, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, Bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat, so that I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats, so I can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat, so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. Now, the story doesn't tell us why Rebecca doesn't just go to her husband and say, hey, what are you thinking? You can't do that. God promised the blessing to Jacob. Maybe her pleas had fallen on deaf ears, or maybe she thought it was better to ask forgiveness than to have a request rejected. Whatever the reason, she apparently didn't have enough faith to believe that God could carry out the promise on his own. Jacob, however, was understandably concerned about this plot. Starting in verse 11, Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, But my brother Esau is a hairy man, while I have smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. His mother said to him, My son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say. Go get them for me. Now, it's noteworthy that Jacob is concerned about being cursed by his father if the deception is discovered. 
but he doesn't seem to be too concerned about whether what he is doing is right or wrong. Rebecca is so adamant that the blessing not go to these Hittite women that she's willing to shoulder the curse herself if the deception is discovered. Jacob followed his mother's plan and selected two of their choice goats, as it said in verse 9. Rebecca cooked them just the way her husband liked it, and then she selected some of Esau's clothes for Jacob to wear. But Isaac was blind. Why dress Jacob in Esau's clothes? We have to remember that they did not have the luxury of bathing every day like we do, and they didn't have modern washing machines and detergents like we have. So the clothes would still have a hint of Esau's smell on them. And being blind, Isaac's sense of smell would have been heightened. Rebecca then fastened some of the skin of the goats they had just butchered on the back of Jacob's hands and neck and sent him into Isaac with the food. But Isaac didn't recognize him. When Jacob says in verse 18, my father, and Isaac says, yes, my son, who is it? Isaac recognizes the voice as one of his sons, but he can't make out which one. I suspect that is because Jacob is trying to sound like Esau. He's not doing a very good job of it. Jacob's deception is not just what some today might call a white lie. It is a blatant, bald-faced lie. I am Esau, your firstborn, Jacob says. I have done as you told me, Jacob says. But Esau is puzzled. Excuse me, Isaac is puzzled. In verse 20, Isaac asks, How did you find it so quickly, my son? Then comes another blatant lie. The Lord your God gave me success, he replied. Now, notice that Jacob says, Your God, not our God. Jacob was not yet a worshiper of Yahweh. He would not speak of God as his God until 20 years later when he was safely returning from Haran. Anyway, Isaac is still skeptical. In verses 21 to 23, he thinks the voice sounds more like Jacob, but the hands feel more hairy like Esau's. So in verse 24, Isaac asks one more time, Are you really my son Esau? And Jacob lies again. I am, he replied. So Isaac eats the meal Jacob brought. But before giving Jacob his blessing, Isaac has one more test. Isaac kisses his son and says in verse 27, Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. Esau's clothes had done the trick, and Isaac was finally convinced. So in verses 28 and 29, he blessed Jacob, saying, May God give you heaven's dew and earth's riches, an abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you, and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. And may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed, and those who bless you be blessed. The covenant or blessing that God had given to Jacob's grandfather Abraham, and then to his father Isaac, had just been passed down to Jacob, who would later be known as Israel. The deception had worked, and just in a nick of time. Jacob had no longer left when Esau came in with food for his father. When Isaac put two and two together, he realized that he had just been deceived. Verse 33 says, Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came and I blessed him. And indeed, he will be blessed. 
Now, the question is, why would Jacob be blessed? He got the blessing by blatant lies and deception. Shouldn't that invalidate the blessing? I think the answer may be found back in verse 7, when Isaac told Esau to bring him some tasty food, quote, so that I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. This blessing in the presence of the Lord was like a solemn oath before God. And Isaac would not and could not go back on a solemn blessing he had made before God. So the blessing would stand, even if it was made through manipulation and deception. Verses 34 and 35 say that Esau pleaded with his father for a blessing too, but to no avail. It was too late. Esau had been robbed. In verse 36, Esau said, Isn't he rightly named Jacob? This is the second time he's taken advantage of me. He took my birthright, and now he's taken my blessing. The point is that Jacob was a deceitful, lying scoundrel. This characteristic seemed to run in his family. His mother, Rebecca, had engineered the whole deception. And we'll find out later that her brother Laban was also a deceitful scoundrel. But as they say, what goes around comes around. Jacob will later get a big taste of his own medicine from his own uncle Laban before finally turning to the Lord. But that's getting ahead of the story. Although Esau's deceitful brother Jacob had stolen his birthright and blessing, Esau is not innocent either. He had sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. And then he went out and married Hittite women when he had to know that the covenant blessing was to go to Abraham's descendants, his extended family, and not to Hittites. Esau had disqualified himself and proved himself unworthy of the covenant. But that didn't keep Esau from hating Jacob. In fact, his hatred was so great, he planned to wait until his father's death and then kill his brother Jacob. Someone must have overheard Esau confiding this to friends because someone told Rebekah, and she warned Jacob to flee hundreds of miles north to her brother Laban in her hometown of Haran. In verses 44 and 45, Rebekah told Jacob to stay with him for a while until your brother's fury subsides. When your brother is no longer angry with you and forgets what you did to him, I'll send word for you to come back from there. Why should I lose both of you in one day? Now, little did Rebecca know that Jacob's exile would last 20 years, and because of her deceitful plan, she would never see him again. And I can't help thinking that Esau never wanted to see her again either. Her deception had likely cost her both of her sons. Jacob would go into exile where Jacob the deceiver would be deceived and cheated over and over again by his uncle Laban, until after 20 years he heads back for home, meets God on the way, and finds reconciliation with his brother. But now I'm getting ahead of the story again. So what do we learn from this passage? I have just four observations. First, did you notice how dysfunctional this family was? Parents shouldn't have favorites, but both Isaac and Rebecca had favorite sons. Rebecca not only deceived her husband, she brought her son into the deception as well. Esau undoubtedly knew better than to marry Hittite wives, and his decision became such a source of great stress and anxiety to both parents that Rebecca thought, I'm disgusted with living. And beside all that, Esau ends up hating his brother Jacob so much that he determines to kill him 
Although Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, and Esau are God's chosen, their family is a dysfunctional hot mess. Folks, some Christian counselors will tell you that if you just become a better husband or a better wife or a better parent, you could rescue your family. Maybe, but that's not necessarily true. I think sometimes all you can do is just try to be faithful to God in the midst of the dysfunction. And you know what? Just like Isaac and Rebecca, God can work through you regardless of whether you have a dysfunctional family. In fact, I find it interesting that all of the families in Genesis are dysfunctional. Kind of makes you think that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, doesn't it? My second observation is really a question. Is it ever okay to lie? After all, wasn't Rebecca's deception for a good purpose? To save the blessing or covenant from being passed down through Hittites? And it worked! So isn't this passage teaching that it's okay to lie if it is for a righteous cause? Now, some Christians would say yes. After all, the Hebrew midwives in Moses' day lied to Pharaoh to protect the baby boys, and the midwives were praised for their faith in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews also praises Rahab for her faith, even though she lied to protect Joshua's spies from the authorities of Jericho. So some Christians would say that there are times when lying is justified. If that is true, it would only be in extraordinary circumstances, like protecting someone from harm, like the babies in Moses' time or the spies in Rahab's time. Lying is never justified for self-promotion or to cover up your own sin or wrongdoing. Other Christians, on the other hand, would say that while Rebecca's heart may have been in the right place and her motives may have been good, her methods were not. She should not have deceived her husband, but should have confronted him and pleaded with him, having enough faith to leave the result up to God, rather than resorting to deception. Readers of Genesis had already been shown how when Abraham and Sarah took matters into their own hands by trying to use Hagar to fulfill God's promise, it not only turned to disaster, but God specifically rebuked them for it. Readers of Isaac and Rebekah's story are now expected to know that even though the situation looked impossible, nothing is impossible with God. And Rebekah should have trusted God and not try to bring about righteous ends by unrighteous means. The point, then, is how God is sovereignly able to accomplish his purposes regardless of human sinfulness. We'll see this again when Joseph's brothers sinfully sell him into slavery. And yet, God is able to use that evil to save Israel from famine. Nothing in what Rebekah or Joseph's brothers did is justified. And yet, God uses their sin to accomplish his greater purposes. When we look at all the insanity and depravity around us in this world, we always need to remember that God can even work through human evil to accomplish his purposes. As we saw when we studied the book of Daniel, in the end, God wins, and we win with him. Third, Paul talks about Jacob and Esau in Romans 9, where Paul writes, Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, 
in order that God's purpose in the election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Before Jacob and Esau were born, God told Rebekah that the elder Esau would serve the younger Jacob. So Paul says that God sovereignly chose Jacob over Esau even before they were born and not because they had done any good or bad works. The fact is that neither one of them were very good. Paul's point is that God sovereignly chooses to save those who come to him by faith and chooses not to save those who come to him relying on their own good works. It absolutely amazes me that after 400 years of Christianity on this continent, some non-Christians still think that Christians teach people will be saved if their good works outweigh their bad. But Paul is very clear that we are saved by grace through faith and not by any works of righteousness we have done. If you think you're saved by your righteousness, you're not saved. Finally, Hebrews chapter 12 describes Esau as a godless man who, quote, for a single meal sold his inheritance rights to the oldest son, or as the oldest son. The book of Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians who are just beginning to face persecution and are tempted to reject Christ and go back to Judaism, which was not so persecuted. The writer of Hebrews uses the example of Esau to warn them, don't do it. Don't be like Esau and put the comforts of the here and now over the blessing of the future. Hebrews teaches that Jesus is the only way to inherit God's future kingdom. If you reject Jesus, God has no plan B. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have sovereignly chosen to save us by your grace and not by our good works, or else none of us would have a chance. Lord, we pray that if anyone here does not personally know that grace, that you would draw them to yourself. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.